You are now listening to Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda. Welcome to Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda, and this is one of our special edition LBDs, our legal breakdown. And tonight we are going to be discussing the Derek Chauvin case, and I have got a special guest, a great friend. Her name is uh, her name is Eva Zelson, and she is going to be joining me as we talk about the George Floyd murder, which of course resulted in the case we're dealing with now. I hate to, and I almost made the mistake that I hate to do when people call it the George Floyd case, because it really is the Derek Chauvin murder case, or Derek Chauvin, I've heard his name so many times, uh, so many different ways. And so we are going to be talking about that tonight. Um, with you for about an hour and just going over what we thought of the case, this presentation, and how it's been put on. And I believe I have Eva on now. Eva, you there? Yes. Hi, Jonda. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And as I was telling everyone, you are a civil rights attorney. If you could tell me a little or tell the audience, I know, of course, a little bit about where you practice and what type of law you practice. I know civil rights, but that covers a wide swath. So why don't you just tell us a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, So I am practicing in the beautiful Philadelphia area. I know everyone's really jealous. I get to live in New Jersey. Um, Yes, I'm a Jersey girl. So hey, I don't (laughs) live there now, but Jersey girl for life. Exactly. I I love it. I love it. Um, So I practice primarily civil rights and employment discrimination law. Um, I I work on behalf of people who've suffered discrimination at the workplace. Um, I also uh, file lawsuits on behalf of people who've suffered police brutality or other violations of constitutional rights. Uh, My firm is legal redress chair for the NAACP in New Jersey. So I'm very happy to say that I get to do a lot of cases involving primarily racial discrimination, uh, which is one of my favorite and very, very important types of cases to litigate. Sad that there's so many of them that still need to be litigated, but at least we have somebody out like you out there on the front lines. Uh, I I say every day, I'm so sad that I still have a job. <laughs> every day, I, yeah. I mean, I I love my job, but I can say I wish it didn't have to exist. <laughs> Exactly. And it looks like uh, we may have a little, okay, came back. It was, we got a, I got a little message that said we were having a feedback problem, but it's fine. So, um, well, yeah, this thing is really sensitive. So it's like, we got to be almost like robots in terms of movements, picks up everything. But so let's get into it. So we know that the Derek Chavin case uh, stemmed from the murder of George Floyd back in May of 2020. The, the, the death of George Floyd, which was unfortunately 
caught on video, fortunate for from the standpoint of justice, but unfortunate from the standpoint that we now live in a time and place where due to technology, if something horrific like this happens, many of us end up witnessing someone die. And right. many people all over the world have felt pretty strongly that not only did they witness someone die, but they witnessed someone being brutally murdered. Exactly. And I think that that's exactly why this trial in particular has been so interesting to watch. It's the human element that we're seeing, yes. um, especially with all the prosecution witnesses. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure you've you've sat through now hundreds, if not thousands of trials. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I'm sure that you'll say in your experience, you know, that this human element, we, we can try to capture it, but it's not always easy, um, you know, and, and it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, having people speak about witnessing a brutal murder uh, is certainly, you know, it makes for an interesting yes. trial, but going back to your point, um, you know, it's horrific that we, we all saw this and that we're all reliving it over and over. And even from the witness standpoint, it's, it's uh, great that you brought that up as, as you and I both know, witness testimony, even eyewitness testimony, depending on what side of it you're on. And I don't know if there's anything near you that's moving around. I'm still hearing it, but depending on what side of it you fall on, of course, like if it favors you or doesn't, Right. then there is always the argument available and not an inaccurate one that is crazy as it's, it, it may sound. I witnessed testimony a lot of the time, not a little bit of time, but a lot of the time is terribly unreliable. Right. Depending on where the person was, the time of day, the conditions, um, where one person is standing that gives an account. And if there are several witnesses, unless they're all standing on top of each other, looking out of the same set of eyeballs, they're going to see things from different vantage points. One may have seen a stick. The other person didn't. Well, was there a stick or is it because of where the other person was standing? So you have those things. And then, of course, the human element, but in a different way when we're just talking about your typical case, because part of the human element also means that you are bringing in a wealth of that person's life and experiences and the way that they experience and see the world. And we're right. all, uh, we all do that. The way that we see and experience the world a lot of times can be affected by the sum total of our life's experiences or our prejudices, um, the types of stereotypes, uh, or if we, or on the flip side, if we have a certain affinity for uh, one type of person over another, men versus women. All of those things are the backdrop of what we bring into what we see and hear every day. So right. even what you see can be very much like a game of telephone, which is interesting because, you know, as a kid, the game of telephone is always based on what we heard. Right. But interestingly enough, as attorneys, you and I know that you could actually play that same game 
with what people see. Well, what makes this one um, different, uh, circling back to this trial, is we have people who are giving voice to what we all saw. And we can also pick out if there if anybody has an inclination to try to you know color what they saw in a different way um yeah and for some of us the emotions and the feelings that they are expressing are very much what we felt as well what are you what are your thoughts on that oh i i totally agree and and i mean you Probably. And and I also completely agree about you were saying about eyewitness testimony. Um, And and people may recall uh, Genevieve Hansen, the firefighter um, who Mm -hmm. testified for the prosecution. After she witnessed the murder, she described George Floyd as a slim, short man, uh, because from her vantage point, she only saw him under the knee of somebody. So that's what he looked like. Um, And yeah, she only saw him on the ground. Exactly. She didn't see this alleged hulking figure that the uh, defense tried to paint him as. Exactly. So I, I think that's kind of to, to go back to your point about eyewitness testimony, but also humanizing things, because we've all seen the video. We've all read about Mr. Floyd and his life, and we've kind of been able to contextualize this. But seeing it from the eyes of the witnesses on that day without having the benefit of now almost a year of hindsight, a year of context, a year of fighting, a year of advocating, uh, seeing it through their eyes, I think, has been especially powerful um, in that regard, especially um, I I think it was one of the first witnesses who testified, that little girl, um, little girl, I know, walking with her cousin, um, yes, the 18-year-old who was 17 at the time, and right. then her little cousin. Oh, my God. I, I know. My, my heart was breaking. Um, and, and I remember thinking to myself, well, she shouldn't have to be seeing these kinds of things. That's horrible. But obviously, you know, there's there's little kids all over the country who are living this every single day. Um, And most of them we don't see because they're not called to testify in a major trial. Uh, But that really, I think, has humanized not only the murder of George Floyd, but has helped to humanize kind of this ongoing discussion that we've been having, or some of us have been having for 400 years (laughs) about mortality and how people of color are made to live these realities every day. And this little girl, you, you, just encapsulated this little girl and and her cousin as well. I mean, it because this was traumatic for everyone. And I think that the gentleman in particular, um, and that's not to minimize the trauma on the women, but as we know, just as a society, a lot of our litmus test of how bad something really is, is when you, when you see the impact on a big, strong guy. But this, young lady and her cousin, well, I'm not even going to call her a young lady, this little girl and her cousin, who was a girl, 17 years old, um, went to the store for as simple a thing as anybody goes to the store for, for snacks, for as simple as snacks. There is no argument that anybody's parents wasn't supervising them or they shouldn't have been there anyway or any of the trash that, 
you hear when it comes to people, particularly those who may be towards the lower end of the economic stratosphere or just minorities in general, that somehow we are responsible for our trauma. Or if there is a little kid involved, there was some level of irresponsibility on the part of somebody, anybody, parent, whomever. This is daylight. This is in the middle of the afternoon, going to the store to get snacks. And apparently such a normal type of occurrence that the cousin, the 17-year-old, felt comfortable actually sending the younger one into the store herself to pick out her snacks and wait for her outside. And while she was outside, of course, her attention was grabbed by this unfolding murder. And she being so wrapped up in it, which anybody would have, the younger one came out and unfortunately saw what she saw. And Mm -hmm. that's no one's fault in terms of those kids because they were both kids and clearly traumatized, traumatized to the point of even not moving and staying there. She took out her phone. Well, yeah, because she didn't know what else to do. And that generation takes out their phone for everything anyway. Oh, yeah. And and look, I'm glad they did, because um, if we didn't have a video of this, it would have been something in the back page of maybe some people's papers in Minneapolis. Absolutely. In Minneapolis. The story, right, the story would be told by the officers um, and we'd hear a much different story. And then I think, you know, and and I'll say uh, testifying like this, this brave little girl has done is a double edged sword, especially when you're a Mm -hmm. young child. But I will say that there is something to many of my clients very cathartic and very kind of soul soothing about being able to stand up in court and say this happened it happened to me or I saw it and it was wrong. Um, You know, and, and I'm sure that her parents have thought a lot about whether this will have an impact on her and and all sorts of things like that. But having the option to do that, and we only give people the option to do that when there's a trial. And the only reason there's a trial here is because of that video. Um, Absolutely. People being able to do that. And you mentioned the, the grown man who broke down in tears, you know, the MMA fighter, Um, Genevieve Hansen, you know, all these people getting to tell this story in a forum that specifically exists to redress wrongs, I think has been very helpful, probably for them to process this incident, but also for our country to process this. I agree 100% because we all can feel through them, especially since we saw it, although not in person as we did. We all can feel through them exactly what you said, that in some way, this is this particular issue, is it gonna cure everything all at once? Of course not. But in some way, this particular issue makes, uh, in this situation going on trial, gives us, <clears throat> excuse me, some sense of an attempt at justice and real justice. And because of that, I'm going to bring us to uh, move us forward into the actual trial itself. Mm -hmm. You you and I have talked a couple of times about this, just in terms of the way that we felt 
the trial was being presented and the fact that uh, it was presented in a way that was so textbook that you even said there, you could see this being a trial that <laughs> is being used in, in a law school classroom. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I did say that. And, and what we talked about um, is, is how they went through and told a very coherent story here. Um, mm -hmm. they, they started at the beginning and they ended at the end. And some people out there may be laughing, you know, how else would you do it? <laughs> um, but you would be surprised. They'd be amazed at some of the things that we have seen. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm sure you've seen, I, I've seen trials that started in the middle and never told the beginning or the end. <laughs> um, exactly. And the reality of it is, is that even in fairness to attorneys who may have tried this case in a different way, there were other ways that they could have done this and it mm -hmm. still have been effective. It just kind of depends on what they thought would, um, sort of what you feel like you need to make a powerful start and make your big finish because on this trial very he could have and i don't think anybody would have necessarily thrown any tomatoes at him he could have very well started with the um the a lot of the medical because of the fact that he knew that the defense's case hinges entirely on the medical because there is literally nothing you can do with right. the fact with the facts in terms of three officers and then ultimately one who stayed on him but there is nothing you can do with the fact that that is what happened that is the visual and god bless the prosecution as hard as it was for everyone to show that recording as many times as possible to drive home that fact that whatever he may have may or may not have been doing beforehand uh, not that it was anything outrageous because they couldn't right. even come up with anything like that but whatever he may or may not have been doing beforehand drugs hanging out in the store get but you know maybe maybe not passing a counterfeit $20 bill which we have found out is not was not counterfeit Right. Um, you know, resisting because of for the sake of resisting or maybe, you know, the, you know, the drugs, whatever it is, however you want to do the dance with all of that stuff, what it comes down to is something that you just can't get away from, which is Derek Chavin's knee on this man's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Right. And because of that, the only thing that they had to really work with to try to get around that is cause of death. So the prosecution could have very much started if if they chose with dealing with those medicals and then finishing more so with the human element to try to maybe take the wind out of the fact that we're going to do all this the humanizing part and people crying and all of that and then the defense get up and start talking about medicals again that may not have sat well with the jury 
if the last thing they heard before the defense attorney got up was, you know, or the last thing they saw was people crying, excuse me, crying at a middle-aged man being so overcome that the judge literally had to stop court for the day. Right, right. I think so. So they definitely so they definitely could have done that in a different way. But I agree with you. I like the way they did this. Absolutely textbook. I mean, and I'm talking textbook right from the opening when I was waiting for him to just use the word roadmap because, you know, that's the word we learn in law (laughs) school, giving you the roadmap. Did he give us a roadmap or what? He he really did. He did. He gave us quite a roadmap. And what we all lawyers out there will tell you is the jury will remember, especially the first and the last thing that you show them. So Mm -hmm. I, I really liked how they started with some of the, I think, the most powerful of the prosecution witnesses to humanize this. And I, I mean, if you're a member of the jury jury and you don't know much about this case, which of course that I'm sure they do, but right, exactly. They, you know, they, they've done their best to get an unbiased jury who doesn't know much about this case, but everyone knows something about it. You know, you're going to be primed to, to say, okay, why are all these people so upset? And of course, in the back of your mind, if this man had overdosed, if this man had just had a heart attack, you know, it would be upsetting for everybody watching, but there would not be this depth of sadness and of hurt and of anger. And then to follow Mm -hmm. that up directly with the medical results saying, well, that feeling that you're feeling, there's a reason for that. It's because, you know, it turns out that when you watch somebody die right in front of you because he's having the life squeezed out of him, it's not for some random other reason. It's not because the man didn't eat kale and run three miles every day. It's because there was somebody with his knee on his neck right then. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, and you can and folks can dance around again. How, the how or why? Well, you know, well, that doesn't mean it was racist or that doesn't it doesn't matter. Right. Now, as a person of color, I, again, as, as I said, everybody walks into every situation with their life experiences, things they're learning, their imprint there. So mm-hmm. as a person of color, I see uh, a, a white officer with his knee on this black man's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds, then I am automatically, whether in you know it's not even intentional it's not even anything conscious my mind is going to go into to a certain place as to why that is happening and right. and i and i get that because that is what we deal with doing what you and i do in every situation because we've got to peel back the layers of that part of right. what our clients are are telling us. So I get that part, but it is feeling that this is why it's happening and seeing it happen. We know that lynches have occurred. Some people have even had the misfortune. I know like people in my grandmother's generation, and I'm blessed to have my grandmother still living, have had the misfortune of even seeing the after effects, of course, because obviously if they saw it while it was happening, they'd probably be hanging right next to the person. We right. saw and heard 
the after story of what happened to someone like Emmett Till and his mother, uh, of course, in her wisdom saying, no, the whole world is going to see this. But as effective as that was, as effective as it is for someone like a Billie Holiday in her haunting mm -hmm. voice to sing Strange Fruit True. or to read the accounts of Ida B. Wells in, in talking about lynching, as amazingly effective as those pictures and stories and even hearing the, in, the accounts of people like my grandmother and others who literally saw the person hanging from the tree. It is still a whole other level when you are watching it happen second by excruciating second. Right, exactly. And I'm so glad you brought up race because one thing I tell my clients, and I practice civil law where our standard of proof is lower than in criminal law, but when we're talking in general about these issues, racism does not have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. <laughs> um, in this case, obviously, the criminal charges themselves do. But I, I think that there's so much pressure on people of color. If you ever were to say, oh, this was motivated by race, you know, you get cross-examined. Well, how do you know? Did you say, you know, what makes you say? I, I mean, I've, I've heard ridiculous things like, oh, well, when he said we don't like renting to you people, maybe he just met people who worked at that bank, you know, things like that, making people of, color of course, without their own lived experiences. So what I tell my clients, people who've called me about potential discrimination is, look, you've been on this earth for however long you've been on it. And that whole time you've been living in the same skin. You are smart enough to know the difference between someone having prejudice or someone being racist and someone who's a jerk. Um, because, you know, that is the lived experiences of many people of color. Um, and I think that people are, are very good at knowing when that is happening versus, you know, plenty of jerks out there, of course, we know that too. And, um, and you and I know there's the discomfort that comes along with it where people don't feel comfortable acknowledging things like racial discrimination for what it is because somehow it makes them feel like they are being accused of something. This right. is, uh, and it's not just in this situation, it's in a lot of situations where people feel uncomfortable having these conversations because, or acknowledging that it may be, because somehow that says something about you, that the department acknowledging that race may have played a role in this or the state not willing to add civil rights violations to it make it seem as if they are uh makes it, it it makes people feel as if you're saying something about yourself we right. recognize that institutional racism is there and the acknowledgement of the fact that it's there does not necessarily mean that you are indicted as in some way of being um, not so much a part of it, but sort of a purveyor of it. Uh, you and I both work in the justice system, myself in the criminal justice system. 
a criminal justice system that we know has been one of the largest, or I won't say the the largest per se, I I will say one of the most obvious places (laughs) where institutionalized racism is made very real for regular people every day. Right. Me acknowledging that and working in it does not in some way mean that, uh, and I don't embrace the notion that I'm a sellout or something like that, or even my friends who are prosecutors, that does not change in any way how I feel about uh, prosecutors, male or female, I mean, I'm sorry, um, African-American or white or any other race. And the same thing with officers. The institution itself uh, supersedes all of us. Exactly. What people like you and myself are trying to do in the midst of the broader notion of attempting to change those things. In the meantime, in working with what we have, we are trying to uh, navigate it using the knowledge that we have to make sure that our clients are not subject to the downside of being a, of being and living in a system that is, you know, inherently racist. Exactly. And the system, you know, predates us. I won't say exactly how old I am, but I will say it's less than <laughs> I think it predates, we can all safely say it predates all of us the, right. considering so, how old it is. Right. So, I mean, I'm not hundreds of years old, so it's interesting what you were saying when you talk about institutional racism or even just inherent bias that some people have and aren't necessarily aware of, people get offended. Like, well, I didn't do slavery or my favorite. Well, my ancestors suffered as well, um, which is completely and utterly besides the point. None of us were around 250, 300 years ago. um, And that's never been the accusation. I mean, that would be a ridiculous point of discussion. (laughs) Um, And it, it sort of shows how Oddly, we as in Americans kind of view this whole conversation when the first thing you want to say is, well, I'm less than hundreds of years old (laughs) to make a very obvious and and sort of. Oh, my gosh. How many times have you heard that? (laughs) I I know. I know. And, 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 you know, things like um, things like, well, you know, my ancestors also suffered like, okay, I'm not, you know, detracting from that. But the best way I've found to deal with that is to say, you know, I think that is a very important conversation to have. I'm so sorry your ancestors suffered, but I'd like to finish this conversation first. Can we do that? Because we're allowed to talk about other groups suffering in the United States. I mean, Irish people. Absolutely. It's, it's, we're not, we're not saying that can never be talked about, but it's always brought up in the context of whenever we're trying to talk about the horrible injustices that have been inflicted upon African-Americans, then it's absolutely subject. Uh, And let's face it. We know that if there is any other group besides people of color and particularly African-Americans who have gotten the shaft, it would be anybody who is at the lower end of the economic stratosphere. If you want to say that the, if, if we want to acknowledge that there is a segment of society that hates black people, 
there is an equally large segment of society that hates poor people even more. So we so we know <laughs> that there are other uh, groups that have suffered, and chances are certainly back, you know. A hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, um, absent other circumstances, uh, people who came over as um, as immigrants were individuals who, and I'm sorry, I'm distracted. I've had to block some people, but who came, um, <laughs> excuse me, who came over as immigrants were going to be largely poor and taken right. and, and taken advantage of in their own way. But when you have a group that has been systematically um, treated as less than, then you are going to have that group at the intersection of two things that are going to make it difficult to navigate a world where institutional racism is a part of how we live. And that is when they are caught at the intersectionality of being um, a person of color and poor and, and of course, uneducated as a, as a result of probably both of those. And it is, it's like a, a monster that feeds itself because that institutional racism also is uh, is geared towards keeping people in their place and their place is at the bottom of that uh, of the uh, of society and who's at the right. and who's at the bottom or how do you keep people at the bottom well they're poor because if you can't um it, let's say with what we do with being attorneys if you don't have access to certain things, certain knowledge, finding attorneys, paying attorneys. If you are not in certain uh, sectors of society where you find out uh, certain information that can help you, then you can't ever help your situation. And it doesn't change. And like I said, it's a monster that feeds itself. And then when you end up in the unfortunate position of um, being on the receiving end of some type of brutality or uh, discrimination from someone who is in a position of authority, which is what we're dealing with here in the Floyd case and um, mm -hmm. several others. Now we've got the Dante Wright case. Right. When you are on the receiving end of those things, it makes it even harder to um, for those around you to seek justice exactly. because those ar around you don't know what to do and they're trying to do it all within the context of being at the low end of the totem pole. Exactly. And I like what you said about how it all feeds into each other because that's absolutely mm -hmm. right. And what I've seen a lot of, when people are always trying to avoid talking about race, that has been, besides mass shootings, one of the most American things lately that's been going on. Um, and what I've noticed is a lot of people like to say, well, it's really not about race, it's about poverty. And that's really what's holding people back. And the question that I always ask is, okay, why is it that there's a higher rate of poverty among people of color then versus white people? Because there is. And mm -hmm. we know it's because of hundreds and hundreds of years of institutional racism, of ensuring that 
white people or people who can pass as white are the ones who have the tools so that if they work hard and maybe get a little bit lucky, maybe they'll be able to start building some wealth. Um, so, you know, it's all these factors. There's not, you know, one <laughs> single thing we can point to and isolate and say this, you know, this is the one that we should be talking about, especially if you're trying to take race out of the equation, because we spent so many years making sure that race was not only part of the equation, but the only equation. <laughs> um, you know, and even with this case, you, you made a good point because, of course, the defense in this case wanted to take all kinds of stuff out of the equation, which it got to a point where it was almost comical. Mm -hmm. Even in this particular case, even if you were to take race out of the equation, okay, no race in the equation. I'll, I'll give you that just so you know, right. just for shits and giggles. <laughs> and you've got white on white, black on black, whatever, however you want to call it for this person having their knee on the neck of this other person for nine minutes and 29 seconds. What does that, how does that change the fact that we watched the world, unfortunately, now has watched or at least heard in some way that we watched a man literally have his life snuffed out, like I said before, second by excruciating second. Right. From yeah. taking breaths to not taking breaths to all of us learning way more than we needed to about involuntary bodily movements and functions when when you die, when your heart stops, how that happens, what the definition of asphyxia is and all of that. How does any of that change what we saw? If race is if if we were to grant people a favor and take that out of it how does how does that change how does it change when if we were to even say that it was necessary for these three officers to do what they did in order to subdue him once he was subdued What's the other four or five minutes for? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's I, I think that any anybody who is not having hatred in their heart it, has seen this, understands that this was not a justified killing. Um, the, you know, and, and sort of when people are talking about, well, is it race related? Is it not? That's getting to broader issues in our society. And I think it's really interesting that we keep coming back to, OK, but this nine minutes and 30 seconds or I'll be fair to the officer, nine minutes and 29 seconds. Um, obviously, this isn't right. Um, and so many people are, are quick to defend his actions, um, you know, for all the normal reasons. You know, George Floyd, like most of us, had, was not a complete and utter angel for the entire okay, Excuse me for a moment. Ninja, uh, for those of you who may be listening later, this mm -hmm. is live. I'm going to have to block you. I do not have any issue with the fact that people disagree with me. In fact, I rather enjoy it and makes it interesting for me. But mm -hmm. what I will not do is allow someone to bogart my page using profanity and saying the same things 
over and over. It's not about canceling you. It's about you not wasting everybody's time. Right. And okay. for anyone listening out there, it's about capitalism. Capitalism lets us choose who we want to uh, have on our own platform. So if uh, and who we want to engage with. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So uh, I, I appreciate that, John. I, I think that sometimes, um, you know, disagreement can be used as a sword. People say, oh, you don't want to hear from me. No, I, I want to hear from anybody who disagrees with me if they can do so politely. Heck, doing what we do and as much as you and I talk, I mean, we, we need people to disagree with us just to give us something else to talk about. And then we'll just talk for another hour. I mean, you know, we don't have an issue with that. Right. We no, I, I, we live and breathe disagreements. <laughs> exactly. Disagreements are why you and I have jobs. We love disagreements. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, uh, those disagreements are not disagreements you know, and disrespect are two different things. Right. I, I mean, and I usually look to whether someone's writing in all caps with tons of emojis or not. Uh, usually if it's all caps, tons of emojis, lots of misspellings and, and random capitalizations, it's not going to be a very productive disagreement. <laughs> Just a generalization. <laughs> Okay, we've given him enough attention, but back to <laughs> back to you. So, um, but anyway, so let's talk a little bit about because we're gonna, you guys, we're gonna be wrapping up in about nineteen minutes. So we're gonna talk a little bit about the evidence because now at this point, both sides have presented, and uh, as you all have heard us both talk about, we actually liked the way that this case was presented, and I will. Uh, be honest and say I appreciated the way that the case was presented on both sides. Uh, mm -hmm. Look, uh, to use a phrase that uh, a judge said to me once in my younger days when I was a PD, and I think it was maybe about my first or second time appearing in front of him in juvenile court. And of course, as PD, I had a bunch of cases for the day. And he called me up to the bench. And again, I was fairly new. So I was like, oh my God, what, <laughs> what did I do wrong? That, that, and that's really bad because you don't even know what you did wrong. And right. that's even worse. And so he said, um, and he gave me a compliment and he goes, you know, I, I like the fact that I know you're young and you're probably nervous, but if nothing else, you definitely seem to have mastered the art of uh, trying to turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. And I'm I, although my family's from the South, I wasn't raised in the South and mm -hmm. this was in Virginia. So <laughs> it was a bit of a new phrase for me, but one that I will never forget. And of course, I immediately understood what he meant. And that is absolutely what this guy had. I mean, you've got your client on video with his knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. You have people around them who were at least asking to assist. You have someone who even said that they were, um, that they were a, uh, uh, emergency personnel, you had individuals who, while you may not have liked what they said uh, at, at all times or how they said it, none of them actually tried to run up on him or anything like that. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to defend. And on top of it, the world is watching and not just the world is watching the trial. I mean, you know, the world was watching during the OJ trial, but the world did not see 
the actual um, murder be carried out. This right. was a, the that trial was no different than watching any other trial, except it had high a high profile person involved, a sports figure. You know, America's obsession with sports. It had a high profile person involved, and the family had made them. By the time the trial came along, the family had sort of become in an odd way, minor celebrities appearing everywhere and you had the whole car chase and all that. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, you had all the extras that come along with the fact that compared to some of the previous quote unquote trials of the century, you had the fact that these things could be televised, whereas they were not in the past. And I think that also made it uh, very um interesting as well, because even with the Rodney King case, and you correct me if I'm wrong, and I was in uh, college at the time, so if it mm -hmm. was televised, I would have been in class, but I do not believe the actual trial was televised. We just, you know, heard the verdict when they, uh, and maybe the verdict itself was televised, but I don't believe that every aspect of the trial was televised. If it was, it was on court TV. It wasn't on like Network, network television the way that you know oj was on like abc nbc and cbs right so um so i mean instead of i mean i remember i was in law school when that trial went on and it's uh and instead of watching all my children because yes we did watch that in law school too <laughs> we were watching the oj trial so they um so yeah, this this trial was very different in the in, in that it's not just the fact that we saw it on TV, but we all in some way, like you and I talked about earlier, because of what we saw, we, uh, many of us, I can't speak for everyone, but many of us, and I know myself and you, because we've talked about it, felt an emotional investment in this, we were all witnesses in some mm -hmm. way. Uh, no matter when you saw the video, you were still a witness, right. and um, and so this this whole thing was very different. And and coming back to the defense, had to make crafting a defense for this incredibly difficult. Um, I can't think of anything. Of this nature, of any type of case like this, that would that's more difficult to craft than when I have dealt with um, the cases uh, regarding child molestation and and uh, even having um, individuals admit to things. I mean, I had a case once where the grandfather said about the eight year old who he had been molesting since she was like six. Mm -hmm. Well, she seduced me. What the oh hell am God. I supposed to do with that? Yeah, nothing. You That's a statement that. that you made to the police and now you decide to plead not guilty? <laughs> Thanks. Right, exactly. And, and that's a good point. I, mean, <laughs> that I, I think that uh, Chauvin's defense attorney, uh, <laughs> Eric Nelson, has done, has done a good job with what he has, which is just trying to make sure that, you know, that his goal is to see if one person on the jury misunderstands reasonable doubt. He only needs one. Exactly. And maybe is confused. I, I know a lot of people get confused about reasonable doubt mm -hmm. and people start saying, well, what if aliens beam down and they're the ones that killed him? You know, that's not reasonable doubt <laughs> right. is so one. It is a standard that is as simple as it may seem 
when you have people in that on in that jury and and god bless them i think a lot of people who don't deliberately go out of their way to get out of jury duty or feel like that they're under duress because somehow they managed to get picked even though they were praying not to i do believe that absent um you know somebody like trying to be you know racist or anything like that a lot of these people's goal when they go into it is they want to do a good job if for no other reason than they want to prove i'm not stupid i'm capable of understanding it and on top of that once you have sat through a trial especially a lengthy one you become invested as well right because as as part of that jury you are very much a part of the process you are just as important in at that phase if not more important than the judge because the trier of fact in a jury trial is you it's not the judge it's you now in certain states where like in virginia is one of them where we have bifurcated um hearings so Mm -hmm. you have your trial that deals for those who are not (laughs) eva and i you have your trials that is just guilt or innocence and then a separate hearing which can still be done on the same day i mean just after guilt the guilt or innocence phase and then maybe we'll take a break, especially if time allows, because you sort of switch gears for what you were gonna use to argue for punishment. And then you have a separate phase to deal with um, with the punishment piece. And then the judge may become a bigger figure in that because um, in some states, if the jury finds you guilty, it's the jury who sentences you. And that's the way Virginia deals with that. However, there's an additional uh, thing that we do here in Virginia is you come back six to eight weeks later and the judge sentences you. The judge may con- may sustain whatever the jury put in place and give you the same sentence, or you may do better with the judge. Some states, if the jury finds you guilty and they sentence you, that's it. Some states, if the jury finds you guilty, the it's still the judge who sentences you. The jury never has a shot at it at all. So the sentencing piece may circle back to giving the judge, you know, that final say so, especially if you're found guilty. But in a situation like this with a jury trial, the power absolutely belongs to the jury. Now, at at that point, the judge is truly a, a presider in terms of making sure that things are done right and, you know, objection, no objection. It's it, it's mm-hmm. it, Etc. And in that much, and in that way, it's still very much like somebody presiding over a meeting. Because ultimately, if you're presiding over a, over a meeting and you're the chairman, if someone says something wrong or whatever, you're supposed to catch it and and rule on it. Right. Um, it, it's yeah. interesting that that's an interesting point you make because th- this is we've had a jury system now for hundreds of years. It's not a new system. But it does seem like all of us have a much more personal stake in this because we watched it over and over and over. Yes. And because from many angles and, and when the trial started and we can all watch it now, uh, we can watch all the testimony, all the witnesses. So having the system now where it's it's people, it's us, people fr- drawn from the community signing mm-hmm. it does seem very appropriate where oftentimes I, I think jurors are, are not necessarily the best system for certain cases oh not at all 
<laughs> right. Not at all, yeah, especially yeah, depending on where you are. I talked to, uh, I actually had this conversation um, in one of my LBDs, I think it was uh, maybe episode four, uh, when the trial was first starting. And the jury situation can talk about it potentially being a nightmare for certain defendants, depending on where you live, how mm -hmm. the jury pool is even, um, how the jury pool is even determined because as, as we know, sadly, there is no uniformity like so many things in the justice system, which right. also is problematic. There is no uniformity from state to state. I'm not even sure if it's uniform from county to county, but definitely not state to state in terms of where their jury pool even comes from. Some pull it from uh, voter registration rolls, but not everybody votes or thinks that voting is important. Right. Um, the DMV, and then we know that, okay, so you're talking about people who just happen to be registered for at DMV in any way or licensed drivers. Do people whose driver's license have been suspended, do they count? You know, it, it can be real funky. And then of course, depending on where you live, uh, or not even where you live, where your alleged infraction was committed, mm -hmm. the jury may look nothing like you. I've had young men from DC where if they got picked up for doing the things that they were accused of doing, the jury might look a whole lot more like them, but they got picked up in West Tubahickey, Virginia. Uh -huh. And the jury looks nothing like them. And despite the fact that they were there because the people in your town obviously love the same drugs that their folks up in D.C. like, there are people who are going to be on that jury who feels like the problems that they're having in this town is because of outsiders like you that are bringing them in here. And oh, and excuse me. Oh, and on top of it, you're a 20 year old young black man. Right. Exactly. And if you want a, a real live, uh, funny version of this, you can watch the movie, my cousin Vinny, which like, most there you go. Isn't really like how we practice, but, uh, I think can put a good spin on it. Those are two, uh, two boys who find themselves on trial in the deep, deep South. Uh, having not been to the deep, deep South before and uh, being looked on with skepticism and as outsiders. Um, and that's something that a lot of criminal defendants have to deal with. And, and I think race is- And criminal defense thing. attorneys. Right, exactly. And, and race is, I think, the most readily apparent thing, but it you know, absolutely all is. sorts of things that can come into it. I mean, and from my perspective, in the civil perspective, uh, I can tell somebody, uh, well, your case would be worth- twice as much in a different county, um, in a different district, where the jury is more inclined to believe people who claim discrimination or is more, more inclined to give significant money damages. Um, so, you know, I think that when we think of the justice system, we think of it as kind of a very serious uh, balancing the scales, you know, justice for all, equal justice, but it's really- There's so very, many elements. Right, very dependent on where you are, who's around you um, and what those Money. people are thinking. So I think that, you know, and of course we could talk about that particular topic for at least, uh, I don't know, 40 hours. Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to have a, a whole other uh, conversation about that because there is the power of money. 
-hmm. that comes into play in all of this as well. And it's not in the way that people think that it's the power of money that comes into play in terms of you buying your way out of something. No, it's just uh, the level of representation and what, and you can have the most amazing lawyer in the world in terms of their level of intelligence, et cetera. But if they don't have the resources because you don't have the type of money it would take for them to avail themselves of the additional resources, because that's the other thing that people, you know, I think we're beginning to understand it a lot more because mm -hmm. there's so much more um, information available, a lot of very bad and false information available, but there is a lot more information available if you know who to listen to, who not to, and where to look. Um, but the, the fact is that we have uh, a system where when you have people um, who are charged with something or who have a claim, there is a lot that needs to go into it, especially when in instances you've dealt with on the civil side, um, when you've dealt with police brutality cases, or I've dealt with on the criminal side, you are going against the full resources of the state. And right. depending on the state's interest in the situation, or now because of the times we're living in, when everything, no matter how big or small your town, which we definitely see uh, an example of with the case, oh my gosh, what is this gentleman's name? I wrote it down, but the um, the army lieutenant, uh, oh, lieutenant, right. yes, lieutenant Nazario. Yes, Lieutenant Lazario, Windsor, Virginia, little itty bitty like speck on the map of Virginia. Um, but because of the times we are living in, in terms of information being available, we find out about this case when uh, he filed suit because mm -hmm. uh, some people may not realize this, that situation actually happened in December, which is right. another example of the fact that there are these things going on all the time and you don't know anything about it. But, um, and, and of course him, you know, being uh, alone, he didn't have someone else and it, you know, the whole thing. But at any rate, um, if there is an interest by the state or like, let's say the local municipal, even if it's the local municipality and making sure that they don't lose because of what you and I talked about earlier with um, not them not wanting their department to appear to be racist, or mm -hmm. if this officer is found guilty, then that's a reflection on all of us. Because of that, that to me speaks to the whole idea that you, uh, it speaks to the whole um, idea that you then have these people who can get the full resources of the state, potentially even resources federal resources, as we see, they can get the FBI and whatever. And all of that is pointed like two barrels against you. And right, what do you exactly. do? 
I mean, even, you know, as it relates to Derek Chauvin, you know, I think we both are very clear about how we feel about what he did since we both (laughs) call it a murder. Um, Even with that case from the standpoint of the defense, because, you know, I'm always going to think about those things because I've spent my life as a defense attorney. uh, If it wasn't for that GoFundMe and whatever else that, the you know people did to help him come up with the money whether we like it or not his defense wouldn't have been able to do what they did experts cost money exactly and And we're talking about him going expert per expert up against the state right right exactly and and look i am I, I when there's a David Goliath situation, it can be so intimidating. And that's why it's so important. We have people like you, Jonda, who are doing what you do. Um, and, and I'm happy in this one instance that Chauvin has no, no one's going to say that he didn't have enough resources here to mount a defense. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, he had the uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, outpour of support, um, things like that, because uh, I, I am hoping that you know, there's a conviction, of course, and I'm hoping yeah. that that conviction is not at all, uh, you know, no one can really challenge it with a straight face. No and straight. I think that the prosecution has done more than what they needed to do, just like, because uh, I know we have to wrap it up, just mm-hmm. like the situation on Friday with um, the judge ruling against them in that motion. I don't right. think that, I don't even think it was necessary. I think that quite frankly, it was very, and I think you and I talked about this, it was very risky for the prosecution to even uh, go ahead and put the witness up anyway, despite the fact that the judge admonished him about the extremely narrow tightrope that that witness was going to have to stay on because again, experts are there to explain things. There's, they have no other purpose. So right. if you were putting an expert up to say something and they can't explain it, that's risky because their inclination is to launch into the explanation that they can't give because the judge has now admonished you that if they don't give it, it's if, if they start going down that road, you're going to get a mistrial. And in that particular case, yes, could the prosecution have put someone on earlier to address the whole um, carbon monoxide thing and the, it, you know, because it all is ties back to the tailpipe. Sure. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, when it comes down to it, even if the defense did argue something about um, him having uh, potential carbon monoxide poisoning, which they didn't even have data for anyway. But okay, fine. They said that. Come back in your closing and just say, oh, and by the way, that whole carbon monoxide thing, not that is even amounts to a hill of beans, but just to lay it the rest, even if George Floyd was in front of the actual tailpipe for the entire nine minutes and 29 seconds, and somehow we found that it was carbon monoxide uh, that killed him and, and the blood saturation and all of that, how did he end up in front of the tailpipe blowing into his face for nine minutes and 29 seconds? All of it still circles back to the same thing. If asphyxia is described as the lack of oxygen, which leads to your heart stopping, 
and, and that was the cause of death. Okay. How did he get it asphyxiated? Well, right. Exactly. When someone's knee was cutting off his, you know, so it all still circles back to the same thing. So that didn't bother me. We'll, we'll give the defense attorney a win for making a good objection. In fact, it was a great objection. Um, and quite frankly, it was an objection that was helpful to the prosecution because had they not made that objection or if they did make it and the judge uh, overruled it, then that absolutely would have been a great appealable issue. Um, or, you know, cause for them to make a motion for the mis for a mistrial, judge doesn't grant it, and then they appeal the judge's ruling on the mistrial. But either way, it could have been a disaster if it was allowed, uh, if it was allowed to happen, whether the defense objected to it during, at the time or not. Because as we know, in the criminal setting versus the criminal versus the civil setting, you tend to get a little more leverage as a as a defendant um, because it's your liberty that's physically at stake. You tend to get a little bit more leverage in what you wage uh, on appeal, especially if it is a good issue. And of course, you combined your um, allegations uh, or your grounds for appeal with ineffective assistance of counsel because he did not raise that objection. So right. you, you'd be covered either way, whereas in the civil setting, it, at the very least, uh, you've got to at least note the objection, whether you're overruled or not, or chances are you're not going to be able to get it in on appeal. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, predictions, because I know we have to go. We're uh, six minutes over. Prediction from my end, I do think that at least from what we've seen so far, that there is more than enough evidence um, that has been provided. And if the jury, someone doesn't get hung up on that whole reasonable doubt piece, which um, everyone I'll talk about more when we do an, uh, when we have another episode this week regarding the closing and jury instructions. It really doesn't make a lot of sense to do that now. But um, I just based on the evidence, no jury instructions, none of that, I think there's more than enough evidence for at the very least uh, the third degree manslaughter because that's such a big catch-all. But I do think that there is enough evidence for a depraved indifference second degree Right. I, I agree um, with you. I, not... I don't know about the second degree murder. I think too much is required, but um, the either manslaughter is, is they've, you know, you've got depraved indifference just from the fact that he just, he, the way that they did it from the start was problematic in terms of all three of them on it, on him, but him staying on him, it, it, there's just no excuse for it. Right. I, I completely agree. And my prediction would be the same as yours. Um, I have said over and over, I shouldn't be predicting these things, but I've never once listened to myself and I'm not about to start. So, uh. <laughs> and you know, and it's funny, I don't usually either. Uh, if, if I had a, if, if I had a bunch of clients uh, that were listening to this, they'd be like, she's never done that for me. Yeah. Cause I don't, <laughs> even for my own clients, even when I walk in the class, in the courtroom with my chick bad, you know, ringing in my head, knowing that, we're going to hit it out of the park. I still do not say you're going to hit this out of the park 
I'll see you out in the we'll we'll be good. Meet you for drinks in in the in in the parking lot, which I would never do with a client anyway. But you know what I mean, right? Um, I but with this, uh, but since it's not my case, I can sit around and wax poetic like everybody else. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I thank you so much because I know you have to go, and actually I need to. I've got to do another episode in a little bit. But I so appreciate you, everyone. This again is the marvelous uh, Eva Zelson, and I am going to um, definitely put her information in the episode notes. But Eva, once again, why don't you tell everybody where you are and what your firm name is and how they contact you? Sure. Uh, thank you, Jonda. And thank you so much for having me. As always, uh, I've had an excellent time. Uh, I, I always love talking with you. Um, again, I am at Zeph Law Firm, Z-E-F-F, um, in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you, though, no matter where you are in the country, uh, because justice has no borders. Uh, so if you want to reach out to me for any reason, um, you can uh, ask Jonda for my contact information, or you can email me ezelson at glzeflaw.com ezelson at glzeflaw.com that's z-e-f-f law and Jonda again thank you so much it's been fantastic to be here and I hope I get to talk with you again soon oh absolutely we've got lots of ground to cover (laughs) can't wait wait. okay you have a great one you too now everybody I am actually going to be ending there as well because as you know if you've been following the case the um i'm going to disconnect eva as you know if you have if you've been following the case we are moving into closing arguments tomorrow i suppose it depends on how long that takes i'm sure both sides have been honing their closing arguments over the weekend and and i'm sure before that but definitely over the weekend so it will um I estimate, based on the fact that each of them took about two, I think the prosecution's opening was about two and a half hours. I had it at the time. I don't have it in front of me. The defenses was um, was not quite as long, but it was over, it was over an hour. I think it was uh, maybe about an hour and forty five minutes. I expect that given, certainly the prosecution in particular, that given the number, the sheer number of witnesses that they put on, no, the smart money would be on them not going chapter and verse for each witness and wearing the jury out because they've still got to sit through jury instruction. So you don't want to do that. But they do still need to, uh, you know, for one of a better way of putting it, they may feel like they need to put a period at the end of a few sentences, especially after the defense, uh, after the, the defense is gone. The defense did not have quite as many witnesses and their, um, their defense theory was pretty clear. I mean, ultimately the defense, whether it's because of the pathology, whether it was because of his heart, whether it was because of the allegations of drug use or the drugs that were actually in his system, however you slice it, the defense's theory on this case, uh, or at least the theory they would like the jury to buy into, is that 
George Floyd died from causes other than the what Derek Chauvin did. Now it's and that's a difficult case to put on because ultimately, even if he did have other conditions in play, if you did something to knock the domino over that sent the rest of them falling, then you're still responsible. Um, on the civil side, we call it the eggshell skull theory. It doesn't matter if you bop everybody else on the head and they're fine, but th you bop this one kid on the head and they die because they just happen to have a condition that made it, uh, that made their skulls so sensitive that any type of pressure to it would kill them. Well, you take your victim excuse me, you take your victim as you find them. If you weren't bopping people on the head in the first place and ultimately bop this person on the head, then they wouldn't have died. So whether or not they had this extra disease, they were walking around with it, fine. And for all we know, could have walked around with it for the next 15 years, but you had to go and bop them on the head and activate a chain reaction that ultimately led to their death. Well, same thing here with George Floyd, even though this is a criminal case. Drugs notwithstanding, um, heart issue notwithstanding, there does not appear to be any evidence that any of those issues was causing him any problems. We saw him moving around in the store and, you know, bouncing around and doing whatever, and he may have been high, but whatever with um, the young lady, I think it was like Sharonda Wilson or something like that. He walked out of the store, his own two feet, got into the car with his friends and seemed to have been fine doing whatever they were doing uh, while uh, before the police came along. And it wasn't until his interaction with you and more and even more so the part of the interaction that uh we all come to know as the Porsche the nine minutes and 29 seconds with the knee on his neck that he ends up dead including a substantial portion of that nine minutes and 29 seconds where subduing him was no longer an issue because he was cuffed and well subdued. So um, not an easy case to put on. And I think that is one of those things where even in their closing, the defense is, needs to just make it clear. I don't think that it is a closing that needs to go on for hours. I don't think that is a situation where they need to try to reiterate every single thing that the um, that they that their witnesses said or try to rebut every single thing that um, the prosecution put on because that's what you that's what you do when you're presenting your case. They got to go second, and they had their own uh, laundry list of experts as well. In fact, as we know, Derek Chavin didn't testify, so experts was really the bulk of their case anyway. I think that this is one of those situations, at least for the defense on closing, they just need to focus on their best argument for 
the um, to try to sway at least one juror that there was some other reasonable explanation for why this man ended up dead other than what the prosecution, of course, would like them to believe, which is just Shaven's knee on the neck. And of the multiple things about um, his, whether it's the heart or the drugs or, or which expert, the smart money is honing in on what supports that theory best and just doing their best to drive that home. The, the weight of all the other evidence right down to the video supports the prosecution. There's not a whole lot that you can really do to get around that. And there's no point in attempting to fight that point by point, because if you do, you're just not going to win. The the um, the They've got the weight of the evidence on their side with the video alone, what you, um, or at least factually uh, from the standpoint of the trier effect, which is the jury. So their focus just needs to be on deciding which, um, what facts or what experts um, information supports the theory best that George Floyd's death is explainable in some other way and just hone in on that. And that doesn't need to take all day. It doesn't need to take two, three hours, um, it, you know, other than just making sure that they provide a, a good explanation for it and maybe some exhibits or not exhibits, but, you know, a PowerPoint or two, but there, it really, I, I just really think this is a situation, at least for the defense where less is more. And other than that, you have our theories. Thank you so much for those of you who stuck around. And once again, I thank our guest. And as I said, her information will also be in the episode notes. I do have an email now, which I promised you all I would have. And remember to follow me on all social media platforms, including Twitter and Instagram, where my handle is Let's Be Honest. JJ, that's L-E-T-S-B-E-H-O-N-E-S-T-J-J for Just Jonda. And of course, we have much lighter things and fun over on my uh, main page on Facebook, which is uh, the Fashion and Drama Diaries, where we talk about all kinds of stuff, not just uh, these more serious things. I reserve these for you with our LBDs, uh, our legal breakdowns here on the podcast. And uh, make sure you follow us on all podcast platforms and subscribe. Please subscribe and on Apple, leave us five stars. You can DM me or email me if you have any questions or anything that you'd like to hear me talk about here on LBD or even on Let's Be Honest. There's a lot of things out there, even whether it's entertainment news, pop culture, all of those things I like to talk about, but there's sometimes there's so many things going on, especially in your neck of the woods versus mine that I may not be aware of it. So make sure I do know. And if you are an expert at any of my topics or have something juicy, especially as it relates to some of our celeb gossip, you know, I want to see it. I'm going to vet it. But uh, if you've got facts, 
It's all about the facts. You're not sending me facts or non, uh, then don't bother. If you want to send me nonsense, don't bother because, you know, have thick skin, but I'm going to ignore it. Other than that, always remember, if you're thinking about it and want to talk about it, chances are I'm thinking about it and want to talk about it with you. So let's be honest together. Bye-bye.